This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Ten years ago, I worked as a fact checker and a screener at a public radio station. My job was to make sure that the information that reached listeners was true and verifiable. And I was very good at it. The day the radio station closed, I took home a single box of files destined for the incinerator. I've remained its sole custodian ever since. There's a reason I saved this one box, and there's a reason no one else has ever seen its contents. These were America's lost stories. These were the stories that didn't pass muster with our less intrepid fact-checkers, those who would dismiss the unusual and impossible out of hand. These stories died in darkness, forsaken, forsworn, and forgotten. Forgotten, that is, by everyone but me. My name is Richard Niles, and these are the stories of the American Beyond. Today's installment is a special one because I knew and worked closely with the freelancer who initially investigated this story. His name is Beck Hallaby, and in early 2016, he was on vacation in Orlando, Florida, when he noticed what he first thought was a simple tourist trap hidden away among many others. It was called the Museum of Lost Art, and unlike its neighbors, which demanded the attention of anyone and everyone, he could find no advertisements for it, nor any readily available information on the internet. It was like a place out of time, Beck wrote, in a piece that would ultimately go unpublished. He continued, It wasn't much to look at from the outside, but something about its quiet, unintrusive nature drew me into what appeared to be a repurposed laser tag arena filled with sculptures, paintings, and other artifacts of varying age and origin. I was marveling at a particularly ornate vase when the museum's owner and curator, a woman named Maria Blancanieves, introduced herself and guided me through the main floor, offering descriptions of the various pieces on display. Among these were The Concert by Dutch painter Johan Vermeer, reportedly stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts in 1990, and a series of frescoes from the Uffizi Gallery that had supposedly been destroyed by a car bomb on May 28, 1993. In fact, every piece she showed me was one long thought to be lost to history, many of them in cataclysmic disasters. I was skeptical, of course, and inquired about her methods. How did she obtain these items? And how did she restore or maintain them so meticulously? Truthfully, I asked out of base curiosity. I knew very little about art history and even less about spotting a fake or a forgery. But the idea that all of these various works of art had ended up together under one roof in South Florida strained credulity. But then, Beck writes, I saw something I recognized. It was a reel of film in a modest display case tucked away in a corner of the room. The inscription on the case read, London After Midnight, 1927. Beck, in a separate email written specifically to me, notes, I became quietly obsessed with London After Midnight as an undergrad. It was a silent relic of early horror produced only a few years after Nosferatu, and the reason I found it so fascinating was the fact that it famously no longer existed. The last known prints of it had been destroyed in a fire in the MGM vaults in the 1960s. According to Beck, Blanca Nieves was reluctant to allow herself to be recorded, although she did allow him to keep contemporaneous notes of their conversations. 
these notes provide insight into his skepticism at the time of their initial interaction. I found the dog and pony show to be impressive, but unconvincing. I expressed my doubts to Ms. Blancanieves as politely as possible, specifically mentioning my familiarity with London After Midnight and the fire that notoriously wiped it from the face of the earth. That's when, after a moment of hesitation, she guided me into a private back room. Now Beck's notes indicate he expected to see the kinds of things one might see behind the scenes at a, any given museum. Restoration tools, works not yet ready for display, maybe some crates, not unlike those seen at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Instead, he walked into something more like an upstart tech company. Ceiling-high racks of computer servers, numerous desktops and monitors and whiteboards full of complex equations he couldn't even begin to understand. At the center of the room stood a black steel box about six feet tall. Beck noted that it reminded him of the monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey. More from Beck's notes. The room was unbelievably hot. Stifling, really. The din of the numerous servers was so loud, we couldn't hear each other. and We had to exit the room for her to explain what I had seen. Maria told me the servers, the computers, and the box were all a necessary part of her, quote, art recovery process. She also said if she told me how it worked, I wouldn't believe her. She offered me a personal demonstration, but said it wouldn't be ready for several hours and invited me to return after closing time. I left, wondering if I was being roped into some kind of grift or bait and switch. I questioned whether I should even bother returning. But I was also so intrigued, and I suspected if I didn't follow through, I'd lose more than one night of sleep wondering what if. Well, Beck ultimately did return to the Museum of Lost Art that night at which point Maria once again led him into the back room for the promised demonstration. The back room was even hotter than before, Beck wrote. And this time, a door in the front of that metallic black box at the center of the room hung wide open, like an obsidian refrigerator. Ms. Blanca Nieves handed me a piece of paper with pre-written instructions on it. It read, Please inspect the quantum box. Parentheses, steel black box in the center of the room. Look for any hidden compartments or secondary entrances. Be as thorough as you like, but be careful. And then in all caps, very hot. When inspection is complete, I will enter the quantum box and close the door behind. 4.6 seconds later, I should come out with a 16th century sculpture previously lost during the French Revolution. Beck Hallaby's notes indicate he did as instructed, checking the inside of the box for any scenes or other signs of subterfuge, finding none. As he did this, Maria slathered herself in what appeared to be some kind of translucent petroleum jelly-like substance, though Beck noted that it had a distinct chemical odor he didn't recognize. Maria did not explain what the substance was or the role it played in her demonstration. Beck completed his inspection and stood aside as Blanca Nieves typed at a nearby keyboard. The servers and computers grew louder and louder until finally she stepped inside the black box, closing the door behind her. True to her word, Beck claims, before he could count to five, the door to the box swung open and Maria Blancanieves emerged, still coated in the jelly-like substance, but now clutching a small but heavy sculpture of a man, apparently a soldier, holding a spear and shield. 
Maria Blancanieves refused to go into detail regarding exactly how the structure she called a quantum box worked, nor did she explain the purpose of the computer equipment it was connected to. But, Beck later told me, she didn't have to. The implication was clear. So, after he returned home from Florida, he reached out online to Dr. Edward Turnell, an astrophysicist and self-described fringe scientist, who spent his off hours exploring the less-traveled corners of quantum theory. Calling it time travel would be a gross understatement, Dr. Turnell said in one of numerous email exchanges with Beck Halaby. In the interest of protecting Maria Blancanieves' identity, Beck presented his questions as hypotheticals, describing everything he'd seen to Dr. Turnell and asking how such a device might work. In Beck's own words, explain it to me like I'm five. Per Dr. Turnell, first, understand this. Time is not linear, and space is an illusion. Everything, every place, every point in time, all exists at once. It's like the hypothetical reel of film you mentioned. When a film isn't being run through a projector, it's collected in a relatively constricted and condensed form, small enough to fit in a display case. From an objective vantage point, you can see the entire thing right in front of you, but you can't experience the movie itself that way. The story, the characters, the drama, because the human perspective is actually extremely limited. In order to experience the movie itself, you have to run the film through a projector and cast it onto a screen, linearly, frame by frame. Time and space are the same, existing all at once, but we only experience it frame by frame, through the projector of our own limited perspective. Dr. Turnell continued, A person with a device like you describe would essentially be skipping from one point in the movie to another. They're not rewinding the film, per se. That's not possible. What they'd be doing is closer to being very tiny and jumping from one point on the collected reel to another point. Now, in most serious discussions about quantum travel, it's understood a person could only travel to other points in time in which the travel device, your quantum box in this instance, exists. So if a hypothetical traveler activated the box on January 1st, 2000, they could only go as far back as that day because they'd need that device to be an arrival point. And then, of course, they'd need the same device to return to their original point of departure. Of course, the idea that it's impossible to travel to a point before the device's activation sounds a lot like the idea that it's impossible to travel to another point in time and space at all. Or even the idea that it's impossible to land on the moon. Everything is impossible until someone figures out a way to do it. Thinking outside the box, no pun intended, of impossibility, if a traveler were to figure out a way to ground themselves to their point of departure, they could use quantum entanglement to snap back to their point of origin. Like a metaphysical bungee cord. The traveler would jump off a metaphorical bridge, and the natural laws of physics would do the job of yanking them back. I have no idea how they would accomplish that, but if I were to hazard a guess, I'd speculate that's the purpose of the substance our hypothetical traveler is covering themselves with. Though, I suppose it could also be burn protection, given how hot the box would be in the circumstances that you describe. This brought Dr. Turnell to the electronic equipment Beck saw in the back room of the museum. The math involved in making this device 
would be unfathomably complex, he wrote. Because what you're hypothesizing isn't just a jump to another point in time, it's another point in space as well. For example, let's say you want to travel back to the same room exactly one month ago. Sounds like a simple enough calculation, right? But if it's the only calculation you made, you'd end up in the void of outer space, because the planet isn't in the same location it was a month ago. It's rotating around the sun and spinning on its axis on top of that, and that has to be very precisely accounted for. And when I say precise, I mean if you're even a little off, you could end up knee-deep in the ground or 30 feet in the air or much, much worse. And if you're talking about going from present-day Burbank to 1950s London, you also have to have a very specific arrival point planned, or you could risk landing in a piece of architecture. The variables someone would have to calculate for would be virtually endless, and the level of processing power needed to check and recheck those numbers would be enormous. To put it bluntly, anyone doing this would be risking their life in a number of ways every single time they attempted a trip. Beck contacted Maria Blancanieves over the phone and ran some of Dr. Trinell's answers past her, just to see if she had anything to say on the matter. She did not, and in fact, Beck noted, she seemed as fascinated by the doctor's hypotheses as Beck was. He would later tell me, quote, Something about her responses felt off, and I realized I hadn't asked the most obvious question of all. Where did she get her quantum box? Where did she learn how to operate it? She paused for a long time, he said. And then she told me she was given the instructions on how to build and operate the machine by herself. She wouldn't elaborate further, but I suspect she meant it literally. I ran the implication by Dr. Turnell. The doctor responded again via email. What you're describing is a paradox, and again, crosses into the realm of theoretically impossible. If one night you were sitting at home and suddenly another older you from a future point in time appeared and told you how to build a quantum box, you could then take that knowledge, use it to build the device, and then travel back and hand it off to yourself. You've created a cause and effect loop. But then you're left asking, who wrote the original instructions and how did you come to be in possession of them? This is what makes it a paradox. A paradox wouldn't be my primary concern if we're really diving into these lines of thought. I'd be far more interested in the ramifications of what I call the gangrene effect. Dr. Turnell did not wait for a response from Beck and immediately followed up with another email in great detail. In this hypothetical situation you describe, Dr. Turnell wrote, the traveler is removing works of art from specific points in the past, then returning with them to the original point of departure. Everything we understand about quantum mechanics tells us this would not alter the past so much as create a brand new timeline, one in which our traveler appears, takes the art, and then disappears again. The timeline in which that did not happen and the artwork was destroyed would theoretically die, like a rotten branch on a tree, or a necrotic limb. If the traveler does this again and again, now you're talking about a number of dead timelines hanging off the one the traveler continuously returns to. My fear, which is purely speculative, is that having these dead, gangrenous timelines hanging off the healthier one would create the conditions for an infection of sorts, one that could make the entire body sick. 
I couldn't say what the consequences of something like that might be, of course, or what it would look like from our perspective, but I suspect the universe would find a way to protect and heal itself, rendering the point moot. Still, it's an interesting question, and I'd be curious how our hypothetical traveler might consider or safeguard against it. All of these questions and possibilities, Beck later told me, continued to plague him, and he began to wonder if they would ever stop. The irony that he'd attended Maria Blancanieves' demonstration to avoid this exact situation was not lost on him. And finally, he did what he had to do in order to put his mind at ease. He once again reached out to Maria. I told her I wanted to see London after midnight, Beck wrote. It was the only way I could think of to put my mind at ease. Stills of the film existed, so those could theoretically be doctored or faked, but it strained credulity to imagine she would or could go to the extraordinary lengths required to create a convincing forgery of a 70-minute film from the 1920s. I thought, if I could personally view her print of London After Midnight, that would probably be enough for me. Blanca Nieves was reluctant to grant Beck his request, telling him she'd never screen the film for anyone out of fear of damaging the only existing copy in the process of running it through a film projector. A film print can easily become scratched or burned if something goes wrong, and she'd never been willing to risk it. Beck insisted, pointing out if this did happen, and everything Maria said was true, she could go back and reclaim another print, or even the same print, minutes earlier. In the end, Blanca Nieves acquiesced, and Beck booked a flight back to Florida. I barely slept the night before my flight out, Beck wrote. I spent most of it on the internet, researching everything I could find about London After Midnight in the hopes of being knowledgeable enough to confirm with certainty whether or not I was viewing the real deal. And when I wasn't doing that, I was mulling the implications of what this thing being real would mean for historical preservation to say nothing of it reshaping our understanding of science in general. I wondered if I was standing on the precipice of something truly world-changing, and what might happen if knowledge of this breakthrough were to escape the back room of a Florida tourist trap. Beck Hallaby would never discover the answers to any of those questions. I could see it up the street from the back of my cab, he wrote, the orange glow against the night sky, the hallmark of a building on fire. Even before I arrived at my destination, I somehow knew. I couldn't put my finger on how I knew. I still can't, even now. It was a familiar feeling, almost deja vu, not quite. I lack the language to describe it, frankly. But somehow, I knew it. The Museum of Lost Art was burning to the ground, even before I saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, Beck's feeling was correct. He arrived at the Museum of Lost Art to find two fire engines and numerous firefighters and other first responders scrambling to contain a 30-foot-tall inferno, engulfing the building. I approached an EMT and asked about Maria Blanca Nieves. They said they had not found anyone by that name and that the building was currently too dangerous to enter. Moments later, the entire structure of the building collapsed. I wondered if Maria had made it out or even taken shelter within her quantum box. It had seemed strong enough to withstand the destruction, I, I dared to hope. 
the Museum of Lost Art, and its contents were ultimately obliterated in a fire that raged for hours, partially due to the failure of a nearby hydrant that delayed early efforts to extinguish the blaze. The myriad works of art inside, forgeries or not, were reduced to kindling, and the servers in the back room were melted beyond recognition. Investigators later determined it was these same servers that initially ignited the fire that quickly spread throughout the building. A major fire hazard, they called it. A disaster waiting to happen. In the end, one single item was recovered from the burned-out husk of the Museum of Lost Art. The so-called quantum box, as Beck had suspected, had indeed survived. Its steel edifice virtually unscathed. Alas, Maria Blancanieves was not found within. Only a few globs of the jelly-like substance that she had covered herself in before, allegedly, traveling to another point in space and time. In fact, no trace of Blancanieves was ever found anywhere on the premises. Her body was never found among the wreckage, and her car remained in the parking lot near the street, never retrieved or reclaimed, until the day it was eventually seized and towed away. Beck Hallaby left Florida without the answers he'd sought, and more questions to keep him up at night than ever before. Was the fire the inevitable result of running that amount of superheated machinery in a small enclosed space? Was it a coincidence that it all ignited on the night he was set to see London After Midnight? Or was it the universe's response to what Dr. Turnell called the gangrene effect? A way for it to protect itself against the traveler who killed so many of its branching timelines. The question that haunted Beck the most, he revealed to me in a brief late-night phone call, was that of the fate of Maria Blancanieves. Did she perish in that fire? Her body reduced to so fine an ash that it was never recovered? Or did she, at some point, step into her quantum box one last time and simply vanish into the American beyond? Today's episode was produced by Justin Yandel and Chris Vanderkay. Funding was provided by a generous grant from the Anatomy of a Scream Foundation. I'm Richard Niles. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The American Beyond, a fiction podcast. Join us again next time. Scream Pod Squad.